You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Good morning, Scotts Hill. My name is Garrett Burns. I serve as one of our pastors over our college, young adult ministry, and our small group ministry. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning as we continue on and even conclude our series this year entitled Unleashed, uh, where we are looking at some of the restraints that try to hold us back from the rich life and the full life uh, that God wants uh, for those made in his image. And so we've had uh, three weeks so far. Our first week, we looked at comparison and we saw the devastating effects that comparison can have on our joy, on our relationships, and even the way that we perceive the world and see reality. Then we were all convicted week two about forgiveness or unforgiveness rather. We saw the effects it can have and what it leads to, bitterness and anger uh, and those outworkings. And so we've been trying to forgive others in Christ just as we have been forgiven by Christ. And then last week we looked at the restraint of entitlement So hopefully since last week, we've been striving with the strength uh, that God provides to kill entitlement in our lives uh, through humility, through gratitude, and through serving other people. And so this week, our time this morning, we're looking at our final restraint in this series, and that is unbelief. The final restraint that tries to, to keep us back, to hold us back from the rich and the full life God wants for us is unbelief itself. And so in one sense, There's nothing really wrong with unbelief. There's nothing really wrong with unbelief itself. In fact, sometimes it can be a really healthy thing for us. Just show of hands, raise your hands. Who has ever said, uh, who's ever said the words or received this, this wise advice to not believe everything you read on the internet? Everybody ever heard that? All right, cool. Pretty, pretty much all of us. My mom told me that for many years. I, my son uh, can't get on the internet. He can't even read yet. He's, he's three months old. But one, one, day, one day I will be telling him that advice as well. And it's sad that we have to say that. It's sad that that's advice that we, we have to give or we have to receive. But it can really be a good thing not to believe everything that you read on the internet. For instance, I came across this week these things that are called uh, tree cephalopods or tree octopuses. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard about them. They're supposedly living in uh, the northwest rainforest of the United States in the, uh, the Washington, Oregon, up into Canada area. So they're supposed to be on this endangered species. There's a website uh, where, you try to, where they try to get some money uh, from you to... to uh, to preserve them, but they let you know ahead of time. They're not on any official watch list, uh, but you should do, still give your money anyway. They have natural predators that include Sasquatch. And so they're, they're, it's, it's pretty, it's, it was ridiculous as soon as I saw it, but you can't believe everything you read on the internet. Another thing that I saw were these things called house hippos. There's a whole foundation ap- uh, about them. Now, it's ridiculous just on its face because hippos are like ginormous, but these house hippos, if you scroll down, you can't scroll down, but it's just a picture. But if you would go to their website and scroll down, you can see that they have a picture of one uh, taking a bath in a shoe. And so they're these really small little pets. Now you may never have heard about them because they're not native to the United States. They're native to to different parts uh, of Africa, but they are an invasive species. I did way too much research on this fake thing. Uh, They are an invasive species. And so 
They've been introduced in parts of Southern Florida and then even uh, Canada, and they're taking over North America in the Canadian region. But clearly, it's, they even have like a Latin name for it. It's ridiculous. Hip, hippopotamus amphibious. That's ridiculous. Anyway, so it's clearly a, a good thing sometimes to have some skepticism, to not believe everything we read on the internet. Another form of this helpful advice that we give to our children is not to trust strangers. There are always things that we don't believe in or people that we can't believe and it can be a really, a really good thing because in a broken world, unbelief can be healthy. In a world full of fallen people, skepticism and unbelief can, can preserve us uh, and shield us sometimes. However, when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to God, God's word and God's calling, when it comes to the rich and the full life that God wants for those made in his image, unbelief is a restraint that can keep us chained in places we should no longer be and deprived of the goodness that God desires to bless upon us. So there's a story in Mark chapter nine that I believe every one of us can relate to to some degree. And within that story is the cry of a father that I want to be our cry as we, as we come to the end of this message and what we do with our unbelief. So just to set the scene, Jesus has been upon the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been with his three his three disciples, the top dogs there. And they saw, uh, they saw Jesus transfigured. They heard the, the voice of God, the father. They saw Moses, they saw Elijah. So they're riding high. And then they come down off of this, this Mount of Transfiguration. And there seems to be uh, an argument taking place or a dispute taking place uh, between the disciples and the scribes. And Jesus comes down and he wants to know what the commotion is all about. And so he asks and he gets a, he hears a, a shout from someone in the crowd, the crowd and it's a father who has been uh, suffering with a son that has uh, an ailment. And he's brought his son uh, to see Jesus. He couldn't find Jesus. They were on the Mount being all transfigured. So he sees his disciples. He tries to get his disciples to heal him. And he says, the disciples couldn't do it. I brought them, but the disciples couldn't do it. Jesus gets a little frustrated. He says, how long do I have to be with this unbelieving generation? He asked the father, how long this has been happening to the son? And then we get this response starting in Mark chapter nine, verse 22. The father says, many times it has thrown him into a fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus gets mildly sassy with him. And he says, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. And this is not, or is it not all of us in different situations and in different circumstances where every one of us is being called by Jesus to put more and more trust, more and more faith, more and more belief in Jesus. And every one of us who is a child of God here this morning is in a different place in this sanctification process. But we can all say with that father, I do believe, help my unbelief. So I invite you guys to pray with me uh, and then we'll continue on in this message. Lord, I thank you uh, for all those that you have brought here this morning. We thank you uh, for your word that guides us, that convicts us, that encourages us, uh, that shepherds us. Lord, we ask that uh, throughout this message, we are convicted in areas uh, where we may not know that we were lacking faith or lacking trust in you, lacking belief. Uh, but would you not leave us there? 
Lord, we leave this place this morning, knowing your word better, seeing uh, this restraint more clearly, but ultimately being able to come to you in trust and say, I do believe, help my unbelief. Pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So this morning, we're going to take uh, a trip through various passages of God's word. We're going to be in the Old Testament a little bit. We'll be in the New Testament a little bit. We're in different genres. We'll be looking at some poetry and some prose, some epistles, some letter writing, some narrative. And through the teaching of God's word, we'll see, number one, that we're not alone in this battle. We're not alone in, this, in battling this restraint. But two, we've been empowered to overcome it. So our bottom line for the message today is unbelief is persuasive to all but you can prevail with the Almighty. Unbelief is persuasive to all, but you can prevail with the Almighty. And to do that, we're gonna look at two sad certainties concerning unbelief, and then two encouraging realities concerning belief itself. First, we have to look in the mirror. We have to come to grips with the certainty that we all struggle with unbelief on some level. Unbelief is real, not just outside of the church, but it's real within the church walls as well, within God's family. And there are real reasons why unbelief is such a battle. Our first sad certainty is that unbelief has roots. Unbelief has roots. It doesn't just uh, spring up out of nowhere and manifest itself in terrible ways in our life, but it has real roots. There are real reasons why unbelief is such a battle. And sometimes the roots are intellectual roots. Sometimes there are intellectual roots to unbelief. It can be a lie that's already believed. And so you have to work uh, to destroy that. Sometimes it's a perceived lack of proof. You know, there's not enough evidence. Or sometimes people just think uh, there's no point in believing. Like it doesn't really bear uh, in any certain way on my life. There's no punishments. There's no rewards. Why, Why does it even matter? When I first uh, came to faith, I was in college, about two and a half years uh, into college, my junior year. And as I left to go, uh, to go to college, I was battling unbelief. I wasn't a believer yet. Uh, and when I got to school, there were a bunch of different organizations and, and clubs that were vying for my attention and time and devotion. There were all different Christian uh, organizations of all different denominations and some non-denomination. There were ones with all different religions. There were some uh, that were atheistic or nuns, N-O-N-E-S, as many like to be called now. So there were all different kinds of things. I was coming out of a home where my mother had raised me in the church. I was going into roommates that were all atheists. And one of my best friends followed Islam. And so I had to find a worldview that was cohesive and a message that was coherent for my life. And I had to intellectually battle these things and learn these things. And it took me, took me about three years before I began to truly believe. In the Bereans, we see something similar in Acts chapter 17. Paul and his evangelism squad have been in Thessalonica. They preach the gospel there, of course. Some come to believe, but then a riot starts. And so they get punted out of Thessalonica and then they sneak away in the, the, the dead of night and they come to Berea. And when they get to Berea, this is what we read. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness. And check this, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And consequently, because they examined the scriptures, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. They were searching for truth. They were searching and scanning the scriptures, testing the scriptures. 
And that's okay because the Bible has stood up to harsh criticism for decades and decades and century after century. God knows that true belief has an intellectual component, which is why we can read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, that faith is the reality of what's hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. It's why Luke writes in the beginning of his gospel account, so it also seemed good to me since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. There are intellectual roots, but other times we see they might be emotional roots. There might be emotional roots to unbelief. Here we think of pain or discomfort or hurt uh, that has been attached to God or God's name or God's people that too often keeps us restrained from what is good and what is right. An example of this in my own life might be the, uh, the terrible run-in that I had with soy sauce when I was a kid. I, I can remember, I, I can picture this now. I almost start to taste it, which is really unfortunate. But my mom, we had just moved into a new house. I was sitting at the bar my mom had made some chicken stir fry. I love chicken stir fry still to this day. And she put the, the hot steaming plate of chicken stir fry right up there, handed me a fork and said, dig in. And I said, mom, where's the soy sauce? And she assured me that she had sauced it with the soy perfectly. But I assured her that she had in fact not done it to my liking. And so she hands me the soy sauce and I put some soy sauce on there. And the moment it touched my lips, the moment... The moment it touched my tongue, I knew I had made a mistake. I had sauced it too much. And now I will never, and my mom made me finish the meal. My mom was like that. She made me finish the whole plate, even though I had ruined it. I learned, I learned my lesson. I did. However, it also now has scarred me and I will never, ever, you won't catch it. You won't catch me adding soy sauce to any meal. I will cook with soy sauce. There's a Korean beef. I love it. It's got a little fresh ginger, uh, some, some salt, some pepper, some brown sugar. This has nothing to do with my message. And some brown sugar <laughs> and some soy sauce. It's like one of my favorites. So I'll cook with it. But once the meal has been cooked, the soy sauce goes in the refrigerator. It's not on the table. I won't, I won't touch it. And for some people, it's like that with Jesus and the church. Maybe a loved one died without salvation and so they know what scripture teaches, but they refuse to follow a religion that has eternal punishment within its worldview, even if it's real. Maybe they've been a victim of real abuse, true abuse within the walls of a church and despite the intellectual truth of the gospel, they can't bring themselves to trust a pastor again or overcome their church hurt. It could be a number of reasons, but we see intellectual roots, we see emotional roots and we can't fail. We can't neglect to see the spiritual reality, the spiritual roots to unbelief. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter four, but if our gospel is veiled, if they can't see it, if they don't believe, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because in their case, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There is a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual war being waged, even as it relates to the restraint of unbelief. And this should... It should bring about conviction in our lives, but it should bring about an equipping as well as we understand that unbelief has roots. 
as we counsel other people, as we, as we look in the mirror and, and we counsel even ourselves in our battle with unbelief, we should have grace and patience. It should, it should allow us to realize that it's not a one-size-fits-all thing as we share the gospel with people or as we, as we try to overcome unbelief ourselves. There are different tools. If it's emotional, we don't just keep hitting people over the head with facts. Maybe if it's intellectual, we can, but we have to address the root of the unbelief. Equipping helps, helps us to do that. These roots run deep and it takes time to build trust. It takes time to heal from hurt. It takes time to put on the hat of an investigator and a historian and to check and search the facts. So unbelief has roots. But the second sad certainty concerning unbelief is that unbelief brings ruin. There are real consequences for unbelief. There are real consequences that come when we do not believe God. Now for the unbeliever, scripture reveals an eternity separated from God because no payment has been applied for their sins. But for the believer, we can take comfort in the knowledge that we don't have that ruin to look forward to. Our salvation is secure. Our inheritance is waiting for us in glory. We're gonna be glorified alongside Christ in eternity. Our inheritance can't be touched, it can't be defiled, it can't be stolen, nothing. But there is a richness and there is a fullness to this life that God wants for his people as well that can be held back because of our unbelief. In many ways, we see this on display in the lives of God's people, the Israelites. God had delivered his people out of bondage and slavery from the Egyptians He had crossed them through the Red Sea. He'd been walking around for about two years being led by God and God's uh, servant leaders, Moses and Aaron. And they come to this promised land, this land overflowing with milk and with honey. And so Moses and Aaron, they send out 12 spies for 40 days to check out the land and come back and report. And we see that 10 of those 12 spies, when they come back with this report, have something wrong in their heart. 10 of these 12 spies have something wrong in the way that they believe or don't believe in God. And we see the essence of their report in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, in spite of all the different areas that I have shown my faithfulness. And out of this heart of unbelief, we see ruin follow in three different ways. First, we see that unbelief distorts the perception of God. Their unbelief in their heart distorted the way that they perceived the God who had done so much for them. We see in verses three and four of chapter 14, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to slavery? I mean, Egypt. So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. They stopped viewing God as good. They stopped trusting his character. They distorted their perception of who God was and what he was trying to accomplish. They no longer saw him as the all-powerful God that broke the yoke of slavery that was upon them. They no longer saw him as the God who, when they came up against the Red Sea and they had nowhere to go, he miraculously split the waters so that they could walk through. Now they saw him as a God who brought them through all that, who had performed so many miracles on their behalf just so he could have them slaughtered in the wilderness and re-enslaved. They decided it would be better. Not only do we doubt the, per, the, the plan of God, we doubt the fact that he would wanna bring us for good things. They think he, we, 
The Lord is bringing us into this land to die, but now they don't even trust his leadership. We don't want God to lead us. Matter of fact, we don't even want anybody attached to God. We don't want Moses to lead us or Aaron. Let's appoint some new leaders and go back to slavery. It distorts their perception of God. But we next we see that unbelief disturbs the plan of God. God's plan, God had a plan and he had revealed it to them. He wasn't trying to be secretive. He had shown them the plan for their life. He wanted them to have a rich life. He wanted them to have a full life. He wanted them to go into a land filled, overflowing with milk and with honey. But their unbelief disturbed this plan. They put trust in their own wisdom and not the original plan of God. And so God says, all right, I'm shifting my plans. In verse 30, we read, I swear, this is God talking to Moses, the new plan. I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun, the two spies who had come back and still believed in God. I will bring your children whom you said would become plunder into the land that you rejected, and they will get to enjoy it. But as for you, Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. It continues on. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness or unbelief until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness. You will bear the consequences of your iniquities 40 years based on the number of the 40 days that you scouted the land, a year for each day. You will know my displeasure. Their unfaithfulness, their unbelief, their lack of trust received a penalty. It disturbed the plan of God. Everyone except the two who kept their faith, trust, and belief in God. So we see it distorts, unbelief distorts our perception of God. Unbelief disturbs the plan that God has for our lives. But eventually we see that unbelief dismisses the power and the presence of God. What do the Israelites decide to do after they realize that they've made God a little mad, that they've disturbed God's plan for them? They decide, well, we'll just figure out a way. We'll do it on our own. The Israelites were like many of us when we were younger, maybe it's just me, but I can remember uh, my mom would take my sister, my little sister and I out uh, to the park. We loved baseball. So we like to do a little batting practice. My mom would take us out. We had a cheap bucket of McGregor balls and she would toss them to us and we would just hit them all over the the little league park. And so my mom said one day we were gonna go out and we were gonna do that. We're gonna have a fun Saturday made us breakfast, hopped in the car. We were going there. And as my sister and I did, and still do a little bit to this day, we started bickering and we started arguing. We started fighting in the backseat of our van. And my mom said, if you guys don't cut it out, I'm gonna turn this, I'm gonna turn this van around. And when my mom said it, uh, she meant it. And so we kept bickering and kept arguing and she slammed on the brakes, pulled a UE in the middle of the road and we went right back to the house. But on our way back, we were like, no, we gotta get right, we gotta get right. So we started to act right and sit up straight. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Mom, look, we're even playing. Ha, 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 we're laughing with one another. We love, we love each other, take a picture. But it didn't work that way. My mom stayed the course. Her plan was her plan now. And we, uh, we didn't have our fun day in the park. And the Israelites tried to do the same thing. God had a good plan for them. They didn't want to believe in him. He told them a new plan and they're like, no, we'll get right, we'll act right, we'll do, we'll do it right now. And so they tried to do it their own way, but it didn't work that way in my house and it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom either. We see in verse 39 what they try to do. When Moses reported these words, this new plan, to all the Israelites, the people were overcome with grief, I bet so. 
So they got up early the next morning and they went to the ridge of the hill country saying, let's go to the place the Lord promised for we were wrong. But Moses responded, why are you going against the Lord's command? It won't succeed. You don't have God's power. Don't go because the Lord is not among you. You don't have God's presence. You will be defeated by your enemies. The Amalekites and the Canaanites are right in front of you and you will fall by the sword. Again, you don't have God's presence. The Lord won't be with you since you have turned from following him, since you did not believe in him. Verses 44 and 45 continue and say, they went up anyway, they tried to fight and they were routed as far as Horma. So we see two sad certainties concerning unbelief. Unbelief has roots and unbelief brings ruin. Unbelief is truly a restraint that we can't afford to overlook. It has different roots for different people and it results in ruin for all people in different ways. However, these two sad certainties are followed by two encouraging realities concerning belief itself. And the first is that belief is recognizable. Belief is recognizable. It's designed to be an encouragement, but in reality, we see this truth as a double-edged sword. It can work to cut the doubt out of our hearts through encouragement, but it can also take a hard heart and cut it through with conviction. Peter says it really well, in the opening of Second Peter chapter one, for he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith or your belief with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Why would we do that? For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, then they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, the person who lacks these things, unbelief, is blind and short-sighted. They've forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort again to confirm your calling, to confirm your election, because if you do these things, they'll never stumble. Because in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Our outward actions put on display for us and for a watching world what we truly believe. The opportunity for encouragement in this battle with the restraint of unbelief, it's laid before us in this passage. It says, if out from the foundation of belief and faith comes the good fruit of goodness, goodness and knowledge and self-control and godliness and endurance and brotherly affection and love, then we can be useful for God's kingdom. You will be fruitful for God's kingdom. Your conscience will be encouraged as you realize you have a calling that is confirmed and an election that is confirmed. Your heart will be encouraged. Your joy will begin to grow as you realize your entry into the eternal kingdom, your eternity with your savior is not something where you're sliding in the back door or just eking through. It will be richly provided for you. Doors flung open, red carpet thrown out, petals on the ground. Right living is a marker of true belief. And when we see that in our lives, it should be an encouragement. Belief is recognizable. But the flip side is true as well. If our faith remains stagnant and the fruit in our lives is lacking, then that points to something. It points to a forgetfulness and a lack of true belief in either the character of God or the calling that God has put on your life. At some level, it reveals that we don't believe God is who he says he is 
or that his commandments are real and have consequences. We can see it easily in other people. Like we know the, the proclamations that we see from celebrities and politicians and artists who wanna claim God or, or give God the credit when they receive their earthly awards. But then we look at what they're getting these awards for. We see the fruit of their art or their music or their cinema. And it's a far cry from anything that God really wants his name attached to. The fruit of their lives display a lack of belief despite what they proclaim with their mouth. And so often we wanna say that we believe, but our actions give away our true heart of unbelief. And we all fall guilty of this in many ways. Sometimes maybe for many of us, it's conflict resolution. Maybe we believe that, that, that God's word is the right path, that, that God's ways are best for our life. But when we get offended, we, we know what the scripture says in Matthew as Jesus tells people what to do, but, but we wanna go tell somebody else about it first. We wanna go home and tell uh, our spouse, our, our wives or our, or our husbands what just happened to us and how mad we are. Or maybe we wanna dress it up real Christian-like. And so we go to somebody and we say, I just don't know how to approach them. Here's the situation. Can you tell me how to do it? That's not what God's word says. Jesus tells us how to deal with conflict when it comes up in our lives. And we go to the person, we say sorry for any way that we may have, have offended them or we may have misunderstood the situation. And then we, we reveal how they offended us, where our hurt is coming from. And we lay before them the opportunity for reconciliation. That's what God's word says. But we don't do that. Often we don't do that. And it reveals a, a heart that doesn't quite believe that God's plan of addressing things is the best way. Or maybe it's evangelism. If we're saved, we know the calling that has been put upon our lives. We know we're supposed to, to share the good news in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. We know the great commission. It's a mission for all of us. We know we're supposed to go and teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. But so often we fail in doing that. We don't make that a mission in our own lives, even though it's a command of God. Maybe we, we go and we let fear get to us. We let God be small and people be big, even though we know what God's word says, that he will be with us even to the end of the age. Something in our actions reveal that we don't really believe, not deep enough, that God's ways are best and that his calling is right for us. Maybe it's how we steward what we've been given. We know that God says that he cares for us more than he cares for the lilies of the field and, and the birds in the sky. In Matthew 6, it says that we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other stuff that we worried about will be added to us. But we often don't live that way. And the calling for you and I, as we battle the restraint of unbelief is to look in the mirror, as James says, as we look at God's word and take note of what sorts of fruit we're bearing in our lives. Maybe we even ask somebody that we trust and that knows us well, what sorts of fruit they see in our life. And take note of the good and the bad. Let the good encourage you. But notice the bad as well and recognize where we aren't fully believing God for who he is, what he's done, and what he says we ought to do. But no matter what kind of responses you get or realizations that you come to as you seek these answers, the final encouraging reality for us this morning is that belief can be received. 
belief can be received. John Newton, he was the, uh, the writer of the song, Amazing Grace. He said this and he's spot on. He says, no temporal dispensations can reach the heart unless the Lord himself applies them. What does that mean? It means we either go to God with these struggles or we resign ourselves to continue being chained to unbelief. It is God who grants belief to us. And while unbelief may have deep roots and bring about ruin in our lives, while we all have areas where we fight these battles of unbelief, nobody has to stay there and nobody has to continue on down that path. Belief can be received in your life. And this is the the sweet, mercy-driven, grace-filled healing process that the Father gives us called sanctification. Let's look back at our opening story about the father and his suffering son. Starting in verse 17, it says, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And he replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? And how long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And so they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, we've read this. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. So what does Jesus do? When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. So it came out shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. And the boy became like a corpse so that many said he's dead. But Jesus taking him by the hand, raised him and he stood up. We can receive belief. Belief can be received. And there's a a process that we see here that Jesus lays before us. And the first way is that Jesus rebukes unbelief. This is the mercy-driven discipline that comes from Jesus. We see it in verse 19 and in verse 22 and 23, when Jesus rebukes the unbelief that he sees. First, he says to his disciples, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you and how long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And then he rebukes the father as well when he says, if you can, if you can. To the difficulty that the man, the father has endured for years while he's taking care of his son is not an excuse for lack of belief. It is always an insult to the person or the work of God to doubt or not believe in his ability to be sovereign over all things. And so it's from a place of mercy that Jesus rebukes and disciplines the disciples and the father. Because the reality is if we continue on in unbelief, it would ultimately be worse for the father. And so the rebuke we see is a mercy. And we see similar things in the life of Jesus. When Peter is walking on water and he starts to fall in, Jesus grabs his hand and picks him up, but he says, you have little faith. We see uh, the same is true for Thomas, doubting Thomas. What a name to go through eternity heaven. Doubting Thomas. When Jesus says, I came back for you so that you could put your hands here, but there will be people, how blessed are they for those who believe and are not able to see. 
So repairing belief begins with the knowledge of our unbelief. And oftentimes that comes from a rebuke or discipline from our heavenly father. But next we recognize that Jesus receives the belief that we do have. He does receive the small amount of belief that we do possess. And this is the grace filled blessing from Jesus. We notice this in verses 25 through 27. Jesus saw the crowd was quickly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit. The little bit of faith that the father did have, the little bit of belief the father did have, Jesus still healed him. He took the boy, he raised him up by the hand and he stood up. Despite the areas of unbelief that the father evidently showed, he still displayed some amount of belief. He still brought the boy to find Jesus. And even when Jesus wasn't there, he still brought them to the disciples. And he waited for Jesus. And when Jesus came, he said, I do believe. I have a little bit of belief. Take that, Lord, and help me with my unbelief. Again, we see it in Peter. Peter really did walk on the water for a little bit. We see it in Thomas as well. He still stayed around the disciples. He could have left and jetted and said, this thing is clearly not real, but he hung around the disciples and Jesus honored that little bit of belief and came back and showed himself to Thomas. So we see that Jesus rebukes belief. He does receive the bit of belief that we do have, but then Jesus is faithful to raise up more belief in us. Notice where the father directs his cry. It's to Jesus Unbelief is a part of this life. We're gonna struggle with it. This restraint of unbelief, but our God is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's why Hebrews eleven six can say this. Without faith, belief, it's impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is a rewarder of those who come to him with what they do have. And God calls us to draw near to him and he'll draw near to us. He calls us to draw near to him with what belief we do have and he will raise up belief in us if we go to him in faith. God calls us, God is calling you to trust him with your pain and let him show you that his ways are better, to obey him with your actions, and let him unveil his plan for your life. He calls you to praise him with your lips and let yourself see him for his true character. And he calls you to worship him with your life and let him work in you and through you to his glory and to your good. When we battle unbelief, we take our unbelief and we lay it at the feet of Jesus. Uprooting unbelief takes time. Planting new seeds of belief takes time. Watering it and waiting for it to sprout and then waiting for it to bear fruit takes time. But it does come and Jesus is faithful. Our God is the the loving vine dresser who desires to to prune us and to snap off the, the dead branches and the branches that are bearing bad fruit to let them burn and to grow in us anew through belief branches that bear good fruit so that we can flourish into a rich and full life that he calls us to live. Unbelief affects us all. It is persuasive to all, but you can prevail with the almighty. The father's unbelief in Mark 9 had roots in his unique experiences and our unbelief does as well. 
His fears and his, his disappointments shaped his expectations. And it's true for our life as well. He was vulnerable in deeply personal places as he fought the fight of faith. And we are too. And oftentimes we can sympathize, even empathize with this man who pleaded with Jesus, if you can do anything. Sometimes our prayers sound like that, if you can. Because we've probably done that before. We've thought those similar thoughts. But church, we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay in that place. We can be unleashed from this restraint to a rich and full life in Jesus. If we allow the cry of our heart in every area of unbelief to be that of the fathers. I do believe, Jesus, take the belief I do have and help my unbelief. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for that reality and that truth. We thank you for guiding us and shaping us and moving our hearts and opening our eyes to the areas where we don't believe so that we can give those to you so that we can lay them at your feet and we can cry out with our heart in the same way the father did and you will honor it that I do believe help my unbelief. You are a rewarder of those who seek you in every area where we fail to believe. Lord, would we seek you in that and trust in your faithfulness. We pray this, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our friend, our savior. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.